0: Tonight's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality.
1: Uh, Does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you don't. And uh, Prentice and Edward will make sure um, sure that you get an outline. And for the rest of us, let's open our Bibles up to Romans uh, chapter 12. We're going to finish that chapter tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, our prayer tonight is we want to, to think deep thoughts about Your presence and about Your nature and about Your will. And we want to think deep thoughts, Father, about what it is that You call us to do and to be and to how, how to behave and, and, and how to respond and to react in the world around us. As Your representatives, as, as Your people, as Your children, This is what we seek tonight, Father, through the study of Your Word. And to this end, we pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. We pray, Father, for our church in this community. We pray to be courageous. We pray to be the light that You call us to be. We pray, Father, to to make a difference in the darkness. We, We pray to make a difference in the suffering and the lostness and the fallenness that is experienced in, in our neighbors and in the citizens of our community. And to this end, Father, again, we pray that You will help us to to know Your Word and to know You and to go with You everywhere we go in this community, Father, as Your as your ambassadors, as Your representatives, as Your people, as Your children. Bless us to this end tonight as we study, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin with an excerpt from... Um, uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, a fellow by the name of Eugene Peterson wrote a book entitled The Practice, uh, called Practice Resurrection. And in this book, he tells the story of a young woman by the name of, of Judith who had an alcoholic husband, a, drug, a drug-addicted a son, and she kept her, her family and, and really her own life together for years by attending 12-step program meetings. And when she was about 40 years of age... She had never entered a church up to that point. She was invited by some friends who were going to those meetings as well to, to come to their church. And she had never gone inside of a church building. She, she didn't know anything about the church. But as she listened to the, to the message and began to get acquainted with the message of the Bible, and as she began to interact with the people in the church, she came to a point where she believed the gospel and she became a very devoted disciple of Jesus. Well, some, some time after that, Eugene Peterson left that church and went off to, uh, to be a professor of theology up in, uh, uh, in Canada. And, but he kept in contact with this woman, Judith, and he received a couple of years later uh, a letter from her that touched his heart and he kept the letter and it was published in this book, Practice Resurrection. And I want to read a portion of that letter to you. Now, this is Judith as a disciple writing to her preacher. Among my artist friends, I feel so defensive about my life, I mean, about going to church. They have no idea of what I'm doing and act bewildered. So I try to be unobtrusive about it, but as my church life takes on more and more importance, it is essential now to my survival, it is hard to shield it from my friends. I feel protective of it, not wanting it to be dismissed or minimized or trivialized. It is like I am trying to protect it from profanation, or sacrilege, but it's strong. It is increasingly difficult to keep it quiet. It is not as if I am ashamed or embarrassed. I just don't want it belittled. A longtime secular friend and a superb artist just the other day was appalled. What is this I hear you about going to church? Another found out that I was going on a three-week mission trip to Haiti and was incredulous. You, Judith, you going to Haiti with a church group? What has gotten into you? I don't feel strong enough to defend my actions. My friends would accept me far more readily if they found that I was in some bizarre cult involving exotic and strange activities like black magic or experiments with levitation. But going to church branded me with a terrible ordinariness. But that is what endears, me, uh, in, endears it to me. Both the church and the 12-step programs, this facade of ordinariness. When you pull back the veil of ordinariness, you find the most extraordinary life behind it. It's a a profound insight by this woman, Judith. Recently, uh, another minister by the name of John Orberg, a preacher in the the San Francisco area, had just returned from a trip to China with his wife where he met a lot of Christians. And I want to read to you a part of his description of what it was like to go to China as a Christian and to meet other Christians. He said, I got to talk with one couple who was helping to lead a house church that grew to a few hundred folks and then got shut down because it was getting too big. It got shut down. I got to talk with a man from one of the western provinces that's mostly Muslim. He was willing to be disowned by his family to follow Jesus Christ. I got to have conversations with people who sacrifice careers or finances or risk their safety, safety to create a little community of men and women who follow Jesus. The most amazing thing I saw in China was the church. I got to teach the Bible in China. I had to borrow one. I told them the only one I had brought with me was my iPhone because I was afraid I'd get arrested or something. And they laughed at me because it is kind of hard to be the church there. At first I thought, I'll pray that it gets easier. I'll pray that there will be less pressure. I'll pray that they face fewer restrictions and have more safety. The people there said, don't pray that. Pray that we get stronger. Pray that we get bolder. Pray that we grow deeper in Christ. This is a place where the government and the schools officially promote atheism. There are over 1.3 billion people in China. Not one of them becomes a Christian because it's convenient. When I read those two pieces, I wondered about our own church and asked this question I want to share with you. When someone pulls back the veil of ordinariness of our church... Do they find a life so extraordinary that they're willing to give up everything and pay any price to be a part of it? When someone pulls back the veil of ordinariness, MacArthur Park Church of Christ, San Antonio, Texas, 2015, do they find a life so extraordinary that they are willing to give up everything and pay any price to be a part of it? In Romans 12, verses 2-8, through 8, which we looked at this morning, Paul begins to introduce people to the implications of believing the gospel with all of their heart. This morning, we, we, we talked about it in terms of how the gospel reorients and restructures your life. Let me say it in a sort of a different way tonight. Believers experience a radical transformation in their lives. When you believe the gospel, when I believed the gospel to be true with all of my heart, when we were baptized and participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we were brought into an experience of salvation that led to a radical transformation in our lives. Paul will say it this way, of becoming like Jesus in Romans chapter 8, of being conformed to His image. On your outlines, I want you to circle those two words, radical and transformation. I want to talk about those two words for just a minute. Those words, radical and transformation, should not scare us and they should not surprise us. Let me begin with radical. The word radical is a very controversial word in our culture and probably even more so in the world at large. In fact, it seems like the word radical has been stolen from the English language and and especially from the Christian faith as a description of the kind of life that we live in light of the cultures that we find ourselves in. The reason is because it's associated with terrorism. Radicalized human beings become terrorists and given a, a, a negative connotation. Radical is a buzzword in our culture. But here's the thing. I I heard a preacher one time say something really, really profound. He said, you know, it depends on what it is that makes you radical. The Amish are about as radical as they come. But no one is afraid of them. Why? Because it depends on what it is that makes you radical. Jesus says... You cannot follow Him unless you are a disciple. Which means more than just intellectually agreeing with the tenets of the faith. It's very radical to pick up your cross every day and die to self every day and follow Jesus every day. But a person who has been radicalized by Jesus of Nazareth becomes exceedingly loving and generous and gracious and serving and kind and gentle and inclusive rather than exclusive... And I think it's about time that we in the church stole that word back and let that word describe our commitment to becoming conformed to the image of Jesus in all things. Second word transformation. Funny thing happens when you join the Marine Corps you become a Marine. About 17,000 young people from all over the, the United States go to Paris Island in South Carolina. And these recruits are cut off uh, from the world at large for about 13 weeks and introduced to the culture and the lifestyle of the United States Marine Corps. And these recruits have to go, at the very end of that 13 weeks, they have to go through a 54-hour simulated combat experience called the Crucible, which doesn't sound very pleasant. But at the end of that 13 weeks, they are very, very, very different human beings. Now on a smaller scale, the same thing happens every August on high school campuses all over the United States. Eighty or so young men gather for two-a-days and at the end of two grueling weeks of two-a-day football practices in which many of them quit, they begin to become the football team that grows increasingly united and family-like over the next several months of, of playing the game together. Now in a more significant way, this is what happens when you believe the Gospel. God, through conversion, brings all believers into one body. A body of disciples. A body of, of Christ followers. A, a, a body of Christians. A body of God's sons and daughters. Now when you think about it, that is a tremendously lofty goal. But And, and how is it possible at the human level in light of all of the, the diversity? When you think about how the gospel goes to everyone and, and there are all kinds of people at all kinds of different places and areas and, and, uh, and, and standings in life, how in the world does this lofty goal of oneness and unity of one body become a reality? Well, Paul gives us some insight in verses 9 through 21 of Romans 12. He does it three ways. He gives us a challenging goal, he gives us a simple strategy, and there are daily mandates. Daily mandates. A challenging goal, a simple strategy, daily mandates. Now, let's talk about that challenging goal. He says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, love must be sincere. Let's say that together as a church. Love must be sincere. Let's say it again. Love must be sincere. You know, the interesting thing about this phrase, when you look at it in the original language, there's no verb. It's not even a a correct uh, sentence by English teacher standards. What it appears to me when I I look at it, it appears to be a blanket statement that is saying literally agape in all sincerity. In fact, that's how the REB translation of that text uh, puts it. Love in all sincerity. Now, agape is that kind of love that seeks the good of the one that is loved, even if it means making some pretty big personal sacrifices. It is a tenacious love. It's a love that grips. It's a love that seeks the good without eyes on self and what you can get on the return of that investment. It is about a self-sacrificing kind of love. This agape love, to this point in the book of Romans, has been talked about as a demonstration of the love of God as He demonstrates it in the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 5, back up three verses. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, His agape, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We flip over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. What shall separate us from the agape of Christ, the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer to that is what, church? No. Drop down to verse 39 of Romans 8. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the agape of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord up to this point up through the first 11 chapters this kind of love has only been used to describe god and the kind of love that god has that 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 uh, compelled him and, and 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 pushed forward the plan of salvation it's only through that kind of love that god is able to love his enemies and allow his son his only begotten, unique son to die a cruel death in order for the sins of those that are His enemies to be paid for and that He can adopt them through faith and trust in Him as His sons and daughters. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, We who have come into the church, those of us who trust in the gospel, are being conformed into the image of God, uh, in the image of Jesus, being conformed to his likeness. In Romans chapter 12, he says, you know what? It's not just about being conformed in all of these different areas, but at the core, it's about this kind of love being formed in each and every heart of every disciple of Jesus. This kind of love that describes the essence of the relationships in the church is a love that cannot be pretense. It is, it is a love of substance, and it's a love with weight to it, the way that the love of God had weight and, and power and massiveness to it that allowed His Son to die and to suffer for us. This kind of love cannot be pretend, It is profound. He says it must be sincere, which is actually just a positive translation of what the original language says. It says, agape without any hypocrisy. The hypocrite in the ancient world was an actor or an actress that was wearing this kind of a mask in a play. It wasn't real. It was just play acting. And what was okay on the stage can never be a reality in the church. To be a hypocrite in this is is tantamount to Judas betraying Christ with a kiss. What we are called as disciples in the one body of Christ, many members, tremendous diversity is to have this real, genuine, agape, sacrificial, looking for the good of the other kind of love that can never be pretend, that can never be pretense, that can never be play-acting, but is the real thing that was at the heart of what it is that saves us. For a God be without a hypocrisy to be the essence of the church body, it must be in people whose hearts are given to the task. And this is where Paul gives us a very simple strategy. The strategy that Paul gives actually forms the bookends of this text. That It's sort of an inclusio. And, and what you find are, are bookends in verse 9, at the beginning of verse 9 and, and verse 21. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. You drop all the way down to the end of the package. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't allow the evil in the world to be more powerful than the good that is in you. But on the other side of it, overcome that evil with good. Now, it seems sort of strange to find an exhortation to hate. Right after considering the challenge to love others profoundly, but I think that that's quite the point. These verses form one of the the simplest yet most challenging calls to discipleship that you will encounter in the Bible. The agape love the church is called to embody is not an everyday garden variety, vanilla flavored love. I mean, sometimes we get mixed up on that. I mean, we love chocolate and we love our dog and we love our our Cokes and we love our church, but we love God and we love Christ and we love our wives and our, our husbands and we love our children and we love our car. I mean, there are so many different levels and ways that love can be used that we can sometimes become confused. Paul is using a very specific word to describe the kind of love that we have for one another in the church. And it is not the kind of love that can be developed in the heart of a believer if there's any question any doubts about what is good and what is evil. This kind of love comes from the hearts of people who seek to grip with all of their might and embody the good that God exudes. And you don't get there if you've not made up your mind about evil. As long as your heart is openly influenced or even neutral about evil, then there will be limits to the depth of your relationship with brothers and sisters. Think about it this way. You know, people, we, we look for people who are profoundly mature, uh, or to become profoundly mature in the faith. But as long as they are still enamored and in and love and, and uh, uh, connected and engaged with things that are evil and, and eat away uh, like termites from the good that is in uh, uh, the gospel, then there are only you're only going to get so far. There's going to be limitations with how far you're going to grow because you're still shackled. There's still this evil that's, that's, that's changing. you like a ball. The same thing is true with the love. As long as there's doubts about what is evil and there's still this engagement, you're only going to be able to get so far in this kind of love. As long as your heart is openly influenced by this, there's going to be a fence that's going to hold you back. Why? A divided heart is a liability when it comes to growing and developing the singular heart of God for other people. A heart that will be tenaciously loving of brothers and sisters just like God is not easy, and nor does it come quickly to to disciples. A heart that will be unfathomably gracious and, and generous and sacrificial does not come because we've not made up our mind about what is evil. And then on top of that, most of the evil that you're going to meet in this world is going to be in the form of another person. It's easy to love people who love you back, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Tax collectors, pagans, they get that. It's a return on the investment. But what about the brothers and the sisters that are hard to love? The call by Paul here is for people to observe your life and to see and to learn something about the Gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, just as a reminder, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who, what? Loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to overcome evil with good. It's with the mindset of, of, of recognizing that there is a good that is a disciple that we are chasing down, that we are going after, that we are dedicating all of our energies to pursuing and becoming like. And not allowing that good and that love and all of that work that the Spirit is doing in our life to, di- to, to be diluted by the presence of, of evil desires. But it's with that mindset where we seek the good. Hate the evil. We're clinging to the good. Hating what is evil. We're not going to be overcome by evil, but we're going to overcome with good. That we're able to hear the daily mandates. And that's, I'm I'm just going to paraphrase it into about 15 practical mandates that are found from verses 10 to 20. We'll end with this. He says, be devoted to one another. There's a difference between being devoted to somebody and just hanging out with them. When, when Paul is talking to the church in Rome, he's talking, uh, you know, he's writing to a church, remember the context, he's writing to a church that's really struggling with whether or not they, you know, Gentiles should be devoted to Jews and Jews should be devoted to Gentiles. That's why at the end of, of the book in chapter 16, all of those greets, as he's saying, greet this person, greet that person, those are imperatives. There, there is to be a, a high level of devotion to one another in our church family. And then number two, he says, honor one another above your, um, one another above yourselves." He says, Number three, serve God zealously. Number four, be a person of joy. Be a person of joy. Number five, be patient. Six, be a faithful prayer warrior. Be faithful in prayer. That he says, he he he, he describes the, the people in the church, the the people that make up that body, that they are that they are people who are faithful in praying for one another, which is just kind of a byproduct of being devoted to one another and holding other people to be better, honored, more honorable than yourself. And seven, uh, number seven, he says, be hospitable and generous with people in need. Number eight, this is a tough one. Bless even your enemies. You know what it's like when you have an enemy at work, right? You can stay on the other side of the cafeteria. You can stay on the other side of the break room. You never have to sit by him in a meeting. You don't ever have to have any kind of interaction with him. You don't even have to go to the end of the year Christmas party if you don't want to, in case you're afraid of being at the same table with that person. But one of the really spectacular things about the church is its transformational power of relationships. What happens when you have people who have come together knowing that they're supposed to have this kind of love and have dedicated themselves to not being overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. To to cling to what is good. To hate what is evil. And they know at the heart of the Gospel is the call for people that were once enemies of God to be reconciled to Him through the Gospel, which involves love, which involves sacrifice, which involves all of these things. A very strange thing happens between people who are trying to live out these daily mandates even with the people they don't get along with. A relationship with enemies ultimately transforms in the church. It's not like the office where you can keep your distance. You know, to to keep your distance from somebody in the church is to, to bring disease into the body. You know... The older you get, sometimes uh, you you feel pain in your body, and sometimes it feels like that elbow is just trying to get further and further and further away from your body, or that knee is trying to go in an opposite direction. Not so in a healthy body that has been transformed by the gospel. Number nine: rejoice and mourn with people who are rejoicing and mourning. That goes back to honoring people above yourselves. I mean, you know, when somebody goes through a tragedy, I mean, it just seems like the all-American thing to do, to to cry with them and to be upset with them and and, and to think about them and, you know, good wishes and all those kinds of things. But how, how difficult is it at times for us when something good happens to somebody to be so happy that that good thing has happened for them? I think one of the the tremendous markers in your growth as a disciple of Jesus is your ability to rejoice when good things happen for people. Number 10, you live in harmony. You live in harmony. Do not be proud. Number 11, do not be proud. Number 12, never be conceited. 13, be careful to do what is right. Number 14, as much as possible, live at peace with everyone. And and number 15, never take revenge. Some years ago, I I did a radio spot, uh, probably about five or six years ago, did a radio spot on KTSA, one minute spot, that uh, was basically saying, you know, revenge never gets you anywhere. Uh, Basically, that anger that is heading towards revenge is sort of like a wolf that is actually devouring you. And said, basically, you know, revenge never solves anything. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you know, in a minute, try to be as profound as I can be in, in 60 seconds. And uh, about two weeks later, got a letter in the mail from uh, uh, from some uh, anonymous letter from somebody in in Laredo. It's a man. It was uh, the only reason I knew it was from Laredo. There was no return address to it. There was no signature. It was an anonymous letter. Was that the post uh, stamp had Laredo stamped on it, and it said. Um, uh, Uh, Mr. Absher uh, was going outside of my house to exact revenge on somebody and heard your radio spot and turned around and went back inside of the house and wanted you to know that uh, I did not take revenge that day. You know, revenge is such a piece of our culture. Revenge, taking your anger, taking your emotional life, taking your rage out on another human being for, for harms perceived or real is such a part of our culture. And yet, when we think about the cross of Jesus, we do not see God's revenge for our messing up and devastating His good creation. But so we, we don't see his revenge, but we see his redemption of our souls. Seeking that good, seeking the redemption, seeking the reconciliation, seeking the, the, the growth of that person in light of the gospel. That, you know, we see that all over Romans, and now Paul is saying that is exactly the heart of the disciple. That agape. That is, the, the at the heart of God, the God that authored our redemption is, is the kind of heart that that God with that kind of heart who authored our redemption wants us to have in our relationships with one another. And that doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen quickly. It only happens with people who have decided that they're going to hate what is evil and they're going to cling to that which is good. They're not going to be overcome by evil, but they're going to overcome evil with good. And every day, they're going to hear the mandate of Paul. Be devoted. Honor. Serve God. Be a person of joy. Be patient. Be prayerful. Never take revenge. Never be proud. Never be conceited. Pray these every day. Pray these every day. And not only will your life be transformed, but this church will be transformed even more so into the image of of the face of Christ. We're going to sing a song right now. And there may be some ways that we can help you to, to, to come into a fuller understanding of a relationship with God and what that entails. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe this is the day when you say, "I want to go in the direction of God. I don't want to go my own direction. I want to go in the direction of God, and I want to whatever it is that that is accomplished in the cross. I want to, I want to receive that. I want to experience that in my own life." Well, these shepherds would love to have an opportunity to talk to you about that. Or if there are other needs that we need to be praying about, allow our our church to minister to you tonight. For the rest of us that stand and let's praise God together.
2: Angry words, oh, let them never from my tongue, Unbridled slip. May the heart's best impulse ever check in there they soar the lip. Love one another, thus saith the Savior. Children obey the Father's blessed commands. Love one another, thus saith the Savior. Children obey the blessed commands. Love is much too pure and holy, friendship is too sacred fard. for. A moment's reckless folly, thus to desolate and mar. Love one another, thus at the Savior, children obey the Father's blessed command. Love one another, thus at the Savior, children obey the blessed command. If there is anyone here this evening that needs to partake of the Lord's Supper, they may come forward and make their way to the room behind me as we close in song. Let our words be sweetly spoken, let kind thoughts be greatly stirred, show our love to one another with abundance of kind words. Love one another, thus saith the Savior, children obey the Father's blessed commands. Love one another, thus saith the Savior. Children, obey the blessed command.
1: Good evening, if you'll bow with me. Lord, I want to thank you so much for bringing everyone together here tonight. We ask that you look in on the rest of us and bring us all back home safely and bring us back here safely. We ask that you look on that fine leadership we have in this church. Continue giving them the strength and wisdom so that we may follow in your way. And please, Lord, look in on our military and help them to defeat the evil ones. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.